0: the Australian Financial Review. Investment bankers are really like the real estate agents of the financial world. They buy and sell businesses on behalf of clients and they provide financing for doing so. I guess the difference is that they're dealing with multi-billion dollar companies.
1: What do you think about when I say to you investment banker? They're the big dogs out there, I feel. Capacity
0: to change the world?
1: Maybe a little bit... Party animals.
0: The fees can run into the tens of millions of dollars.
1: Do you have any idea how much investment bankers earn? I would probably go into the millions, but not like a lot millions, maybe. How long's a piece of string? Some don't earn a huge amount and some, some earn an extortionate amount of money. I'd say up to $20 million a year or, or more.
0: And the rule of thumb is that of the various advisors, who range from accountants and lawyers to through to the investment bankers, it's investment bankers that get
1: the lion's share. That's my colleague Jemima White. She's been writing a lot about investment banks lately. Up until March this year, Australia was in the middle of a merger and acquisition boom, fueled by cheap money, and that was good for the big global players of investment banking. This is Goldman Sachs. See yourself here. You and us. UBS. Morgan Stanley Capital Creates Change. But there's also a new bank on the block that's been at the centre of the action, and it's Australian. Welcome to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray. Today, I'm joined by Australian Financial Review senior reporter Jemima White as we explore the inside story of homegrown investment bank, Baron Joey. Why it has attracted controversy and what might happen as deal-making stalls and the era of cheap money comes to an end. It's Thursday, November 3rd. Jemima, Baron Joey is the first serious Australian player to emerge on the local banking scene since Macquarie in the 1960s. It's been around for almost two years now and just put out its accounts this week. How are they going? Um, Look, in terms of the impression they've made in the financial
0: markets and the activity they've been involved in, they've absolutely exceeded everyone's expectations. And really, they had to because they've got a whole lot of mouths to feed in the form of their employees. And we really saw that in the accounts that came through. Their employee expenses were high. Um, Financially, in terms of a success, it's not there yet. And you wouldn't expect it to be. I mean, this is a three to five year build. But again, what the accounts showed is they only really scraped into a profit this year because of a very hefty tax benefit, uh, which a lot of people are really quick to point out isn't really real money.
1: So when people talk about Baron Joey, they're really talking about two people. Tell us about them.
0: Matthew Grounds and Guy Fowler have really been at the top of the tree of the investment banking industry for a very, very long time. They're both from UBS originally and spent a lot of their careers there, um, ultimately rising to become co-heads of the local UBS franchise. Of the two, I think perhaps Guy Fowler was always known as the more low-profile of the pair, although they worked very closely together, so it was sometimes hard to tell what was going on in the background. Matthew Grounds was definitely the one that was considered to be the closer of, with the big billionaire families, whether that was the Packers, the Lowies, or the Stokeses. Within financial circles, after the GFC, he was really regarded as one of the top investment bankers of his, his generation. Where it really made the jump from Matthew Grounds being talked about in financial services to more broadly, I think, was a profile piece written by Pamela Williams in 2012 in the AFR magazine.
1: Hi, hi. We're here with Pam. We're in the studio. We're all set up. Yes. OK, that's good. And you can say uh,
2: Matthew was the youngest of five boys. He grew up in Sydney's south a boy from the Shire. He very quickly though made friends at university and got into some, you know, some good networks of people who were going places. Not long after university, he got into investment banking and he started quite low down He went off to London and before long was moving around in the investment banking system. He was a very big uh, success story in investment banking at that point.
0: In that profile, there's a description of Matthew Grounds that really took on a life of its own. What was it?
2: Yeah, I interviewed James Packer um, on the subject of Matthew Grounds for the profile uh, because they had become very close. James Packer said to me that Matthew Grounds was the rock star of Australian investment banking. I think Matthew Grounds could immediately see that the term rock star would become attached to him um, because it had come from James Packer. So he asked me to dump it, and I wouldn't, but he was extremely unhappy about it. He does not like to be singled out. He likes to be behind the scenes. You know, he, he likes to disappear, James Packer also called Matthew Grounds the smiling assassin. Um, and I think that does go very much to the fact that Grounds is he's a very nice fellow, very uh, comfortable, easygoing. And uh, underneath that is the guy who became the global investment banking head of UBS. So. By the end of 2019,
1: both Matthew Grounds and Guy Fowler had left UBS and rumours started to circulate that a group of former UBS executives were setting up a new investment bank. Why did they think there was room in this market? I
0: definitely think they felt they could provide an investment bank that was better than any other one out there. And a key factor in that was making sure it was majority owned by employees so they could share along the profits along the way. Um, it was a big risk and a very audacious move. Most senior and experienced investment bankers really ride off into the sunset with a couple of key relationships and and advise people from time to time. To build a bank from scratch that rivals these big global ones is not something we've seen before. They've signed hundreds and hundreds of people and if it works it'll be very, very profitable. Um, I think it's probably the last roll of the dice to leave a really big mark on the local investment banking industry.
1: At first, there was lots of talk, but Baron Joey almost didn't get off the ground. What happened? In
0: May 2020, it looked as though everything was coming together really quickly. There'd been rumours for months after Guy Fowler and Matthew Grounds had left UBS about what they were starting, when they'd started and who they'd bring with them. And then in that sort of last week of May, we started getting calls. You know, people were ringing in saying, our bankers are being poached. This, this new business is is getting off the ground. And then within in days, if not hours, we were told those contracts had been pulled. People who had been promised jobs at this new outfit, which was so new, we didn't even really know what it was called, were suddenly told they weren't available anymore. Well, you can imagine the excitement from the rest of the banking market. You know, they were they were running around saying, look, these guys can't even hire people. Why would you trust them to do a deal? Behind the scenes, what was really happening was they were realising they wanted to put operational things in place first and they re- recognising they needed someone to do it. Guy Fowler and Matthew Grounds had come from a big global investment bank and they knew about the compliance headaches. They didn't want to be the ones responsible for that again. So what happened was Guy Fowler had lunch with an old client, Brian Benari, and they, over many bottles of wine in Balmoral, thrashed out how they could make it work. And ultimately, Brian Benari ended up being chief executive of Baron Joey. But the real coup was their financial backers. Uh, One was Magellan Financial Group, which at the time was riding super high. It had been founded by two former investment bankers, Chris Mackay and Hamish Douglas. Um, But it was an unusual move for them to back a fledgling investment bank because it was actually a funds management house. They also managed to get Barclays, the big UK investment bank, in their corner, which was another coup. Since then things have drastically changed. Barclays is still doing you know very well and has actually put more money into Baron Joey. Magellan is now in a position where they're not able to continue to write more money for Baron Joey. Their share price nosedive, their funds under management have evaporated, and they're in their own rebuild.
1: Okay, so at the beginning of last year, Baron Joey was in good shape. Grounds and Fowler had a CEO. Grand Plans and two financial backers who at the time had considerable capital firepower. They decided to go on an aggressive hiring spree. Tell us what happened. Well, there's a couple of interesting things around that. First of all, Grounds wasn't
0: necessarily signed up for Baron Joey. He was around the edges. The expectation would be he'd joined, but he hadn't signed on the dotted line. Um, But look, back to March 2021, there was a Big raid and we dubbed it Bloody Monday. It was Baron Joey literally picked off tens and tens of bankers and analysts across the market, and probably the bulk of those came from UBS. It's not unheard of in this market, but there was really an extra edge to all of this because in doing this, Baron Joey was literally hollowing out the bank that they'd helped to build.
1: Jemima, we've been talking about the false starts and then the big push in the establishment of Baron Joey. Once it was up and running, how long did it take for the bank to start winning deals?
0: The bank was pretty quick off the mark. They showed up as advisors on a series of very big deals very quickly.
1: One of Queensland's oldest banks could soon be in interstate hands with Suncorp agreeing to a multi-billion dollar takeover.
0: It's a Queensland institution, the name long connected to the cauldron. Now Suncorp Bank is being sold.
1: To ANZ for $4.9 billion.
0: And that was probably the idea because no-one wants to open their doors with a $450 million valuation, heaps of employees and sit around doing nothing.
2: At the urging of the federal government, Telstra started to contemplate whether it might be willing to buy Digicel itself. Now that's come to pass after several months of negotiations. uh, The federal government has essentially agreed to a financing
0: package worth some $1.9 billion. They went straight out of the gates and were pretty aggressive from the get-go. Sydney Airport has accepted a $24 billion takeover offer, making it one of the largest corporate deals this year. The really big deal that really got them going was the Sydney Airport's deal.
2: The privatisation of Sydney Airport, which was not sought by us as a board of Sydney Airport, was uh, in total a cost of $23 billion. So it was a big big buy.
0: It also came with a little bit of controversy because Baron Joey's chairman is David Gonski and Sydney Airport's chairman was David Gonski.
2: That's why I was enticed to come to Baron Joey. It is the cream, in my opinion, of merchant banking.
0: Sydney Airports was a big deal and it sent Baron Joey right up the league tables. It it had another layer to it, which I think this was a lot of speculation and focus on in the market, and that was that David Gonski... Who had a role at Baron Joey was also chairman of Sydney Airports. You know, if you're generous, you say it served to remind everyone how really well positioned Baron Joey is in the boardrooms around Australia. Uh, but there were plenty of people in the market who were also quick to point out that, you know, this also was a reminder of potential conflicts.
1: Right, but that's not the only time conflict of interest issues have been raised for Baron Joey, is it? Yes, that's that's
0: right, Lisa. Um, conflict of interest can always be a bit of an issue in investment banking. But one deal that's been a real standout was BHP's takeover proposal of Oz Minerals. BHP's chairman, Ken McKenzie, is actually a special advisor of Baron Joey's and interestingly was instrumental in helping them secure funding through an introduction to Barclays, who's one of their major backers. So to have the BHP chairman as a special advisor, even without that financial link, was already considered a little bit controversial from the outset because they're such big fee riders in this market. And that's why back when this was all announced, one of the independent directors at the AGM made a point of saying in response to a question at the annual meeting, they wouldn't ever use Baron Joey as their investment bank. But of course, as it turned out, that independence now left and Baron Joey's popped up on the BHP ticket for Oz Minerals. And BHP has justified that by simply saying the chair accused himself from the board discussion about whether to appoint Baron Joey. In many ways, this stuff is just part of the ups and downs of investment banking. And one of the interesting things is this deal doesn't even look like it's going to get up given the way the shares are trading, but you never know.
1: We talked a lot about the frenetic deal activity as the world emerged from the pandemic. Why was it such a boom time? There was cheap money, cheap debt, a rising market.
0: Everyone got a little bit of FOMO. And I think everyone felt they better move fast. COVID accelerated things. There were new trends that had occurred and and people wanted to get out in front of them.
1: So this was really the perfect time for Baron Joey to launch. But then at the start of this year, with inflation concerns hitting countries around the world, central banks started to raise interest rates. And that's had a big impact on companies' appetite to do deals. So, Jemima, what does this mean for Australia's newest investment bank? Probably Baron Joey
0: may need some more capital. It'll be interesting to see where that comes from. they as we've talked about, they're in the middle of a really big rollout of a full service operation and that's expensive. Um, They've really done something remarkable in that they are around all these big transactions in a relatively short period of time. And I think they've proven that this group of bankers with a different name in different premises is competing with the normal people they would have been servicing. So will it suddenly fade into nothing as the deals dry up? I don't think so. But I do think it'll cost more to run what we're seeing at the moment is equity capital markets just really aren't doing a lot. But M&A is still occurring. We've still got some big deals out there. We're likely to see more. I think where people think it's going to get harder is it's harder to close these deals. And if you can't close the deals, you don't get paid.
1: Right. And we're already starting to see the results of the big global investment banks. They've all been reporting in the last few weeks. Investment banking revenue has dropped substantially. So what's that telling us?
0: I think really what this says is that everyone's going into a tough investment banking period. As deal activity dries up, it's going to be harder and harder to get that piece of the pie. One of the reasons the entry of Baron Joey into the local market attracted so much fascination and fear, aside from the personalities and the envy and the confusion about why they were necessarily doing this now, is that the market down here is overbanked and is overbroked. So as conditions get tougher, the real question is going to be, does Baron Joey have to scale back or will their success force other investment banks to scale back?
1: Thanks for taking the time, Jemima, and everyone will be watching and waiting to see how Baron Joey goes over the next 12 months.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Lisa.
1: Here's the other big stories we're covering this week. The battle over the Board of Electricity and Gas Supplier AGL is heating up as two more proxy advisers have recommended that shareholders back most of the director candidates proposed by activist shareholder Mike Cannon-Brooks Grok Ventures. The recommendations put pressure on AGL's chairman, Patricia McKenzie, ahead of the company's annual shareholder meeting on November 15. And Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill has stunned the technology industry by introducing skilled migration rules the industry's peak body says will make it harder to bring in cyber experts, software engineers and technology developers. The move comes amid a cyber crisis and well-documented skills shortage. If you like the show and want to hear more, follow us wherever you get your podcasts and consider rating and reviewing us as it helps others find us. For more stories about markets, business and power, subscribe to The Financial Review at afr.com slash subscribe. See you next week.
0: The Australian Financial Review.